So good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you. Uh, two useful lessons I've learned this week. Uh, one, maybe it's a lesson for all of us. The other may be for me. The first one is be careful of fire extinguishers. They have a mind of their own. They're dangerous. Uh, and the second is this. Do not try and start rewriting your sermon at 10.30 on a Saturday evening. Anyway, I've probably learned that lesson a bit too late, but but yes, uh, we're well into our exploration of the Apostle Paul, looking at his life, looking at his ministry, looking at his writings. And I guess one of the things we're trying to do in this series is to, in a sense, explore the big picture of, Paul li- of Paul's life, to highlight some of the things that were going on in his life and some of the issues that he was addressing and dealing with in his life, some of what he was learning as he went along, so that we can hear Paul properly, so that we can hear Paul in context. You often hear Charlie and I saying that we need to hear the Bible in context. We're not, first and foremost, trying to expound individual passages of Scripture. So today I'm not going to go through verse by verse that passage that we've just heard from Galatians 2, tempting as that might be because it is an incredibly rich passage. Instead, I guess I want to, I want to use one verse and, and, and to use that really as a lens through which we can see what is going on here. What, it, what, is, what is Paul trying to get across? Uh, what, is, what, what is going on in the church uh, that he is addressing? So much of what Paul writes is addressing specific issues, specific things that have come up in the life of the church. And Paul is bringing wisdom and guidance to that place. So, so this morning, I want to look at this verse, which hopefully is on the screen. The NIV puts it like this. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Or as Tom Wright in his own translation, I think, helpfully puts it. But we know that a person is not declared righteous by works of Jewish law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus, the Messiah. And I guess often when I've heard this verse preached, uh, the preacher has set up this kind of dichotomy between faith and works. So on one side you have faith, and on the other side you have works. Uh, And Judaism, we're told, is is primarily a works-based religion. The Jews, we're told, believe that by keeping the Torah, by keeping the law, that is the way to earn God's saving approval. If you like, you get God's approval by being a good boy or a good girl and keeping the law. It's, it's grossly simplified, uh, that. But, it's, uh, but also, most Jews in Paul's day wouldn't have recognized that description of their faith. Their response would have gone along something like this. Uh, of course, we aren't justified by doing the works of Torah or the law, as you call it. We are justified by our loving and gracious God. He saves us in the very same way that he called us into existence in the first place, through our father Abraham, and then through Moses, and then the Exodus. He saves us by giving life to us, and ultimately by resurrecting us as a gift. And what's more, God has gifted us with these precious instructions, with his guidance about how to live our lives before him in a way that pleases him. And he's done that because he loves us. And he wants us to know the blessing of living well together. 
And we are deeply dedicated to doing that the best we can. For that's how we express our love and our loyalty and our thankfulness to him. For the Jewish community, the Torah, the law was a gift. Showing them how to live in response to all that God has done for them. Keeping the law was an act of faithfulness or loyalty. The, the Greek word's the same. Loyalty to the ancient ancestral traditions. Loyalty to the witness of scripture. And above all, loyalty to the God who called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the first place. Loyalty. Uh, the Greek word is the word pistis. Uh, often in our Bibles, that word is... It, the Bible, for those who don't know or certainly the New Testament was originally written in Greek, uh, and we translate it. Uh, and this word pistis is often translated as faith. But it carries a whole group of meanings. Reliability, faithfulness, fidelity, loyalty, and, and allegiance. Sometimes we, oftentimes, maybe we reduce faith to something that goes on up here about what we believe. And what we believe is important, don't get me wrong. But I find it helpful to think of pistis, it's one of Paul's favorite words, as describing the way we live out our belonging to God. It is faith, loyalty, embodied or inactive. It's the way that we live out God's yes to us. At this point, obviously, we're a long way from the works of law being the way we earn our standing before God. But actually, there's another, another thing we need to know about this phrase, the works of the law. What, what Paul probably had in mind here are those practices, those Jewish practices, that kind of stood as a, as a mark of their distinctiveness, maybe in their own minds, their own superiority. It is what identified them as Jewish. Circumcision. Dietary observation, keeping, keeping the Sabbath, the badges of Jewish identity. They're what distinguished the Jews from the non-Jews, Gentiles, we, they were called. Uh, and those badges, if you like, those practices were, were, were now under threat. You see, although Christianity was a movement that began in Judaism, it didn't stay there for very long. And soon, many from outside the Jewish community were coming to faith in Jesus, acknowledging him as the world's true king and wanting to follow him. And in Antioch, we were looking at Antioch a couple of weeks ago, and in Galatia, and Charlie was looking at Galatia last week. And elsewhere, Jews and Gentiles were coming together as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus. And of course, we might say, how wonderful is that? How brilliant is that? How great is that? And of course, the church in Jerusalem, Jerusalem really the cradle of Judaism, might have said the same thing. And yet, at the same time, disturbing reports were coming in from all over the place about Jewish Christians who were going soft and giving up the demands of Torah. So they were hearing stories of Jews and Gentiles eating and drinking together, sharing table fellowship with each other, 
Can you imagine such a thing? That's how the Jewish Christians would have felt. What if the food's not kosher? What are they doing about that? And have they completely forgotten the rules of social distancing? You see, Gentiles were regarded as ceremonially unclean. And by eating with them, if you got a bit too close to them, that uncleanliness would infect you. And you would become unclean. Eating together was a definite no-no. But the early Christians were big on eating together. And usually when they celebrated the Lord's Supper, they would do so as part of a meal. That was certainly the case in Antioch. I was part of a church when I was much younger than I am now, uh, where once a month on a Tuesday evening we'd gather together for, for a meal and we'd enjoy fellowship and food and laughter and tears, sharing our lives as you do when you eat together. And then at some point during the, during the evening, sat around a table, we would share bread and wine. Reminding us of what, what it was that united us. Reminding us of what it was that brought us together. Reminding us of what it was that enabled us to sit down at table together. They were, they were special times. And when Peter arrives in Antioch, initially he's happy to join in. And eat together with, with all the Christians, Jews and Gentiles alike. But then later a group of Jewish Christians arrive from Jerusalem there's a hint that maybe they were, they were sent to kind of check out what was going on in Antioch to, to maybe put them right. And when this group arrives, Peter and many of the other Jews, including Barnabas, they withdraw from their Gentile brothers and sisters. They withdraw from table fellowship. And you kind of have a church that's split, Jews on one hand and Gentiles on the other. And it's fair to say that Paul doesn't pull his punches. And in verses 11 to 14, Paul absolutely slams Peter, accusing him of being a hypocrite. One minute he says you're sharing table fellowship, and the next you're not. You're betraying the gospel, he says to Peter. Wow, what a thing to say. You're betraying the gospel. You're denying what God is doing by bringing Jews and Gentiles together. Why do you want to force the Gentiles to become Jews? It's the question he asks in verse 14. And at the heart of it, that's the question that the Jewish church in particular was struggling with. Do Gentile Christians need to become Jews in order to follow Jesus? That was certainly what was happening in Galatia. Because it seems like a second group has gone out from Jerusalem and we're saying that very thing to, to the Christians in Galatia. Their line was straightforward. If you want Gentiles to belong, if you want them to be accepted as members of the family of Abraham, then you need to get circumcised. Faithfulness, loyalty, the Torah, the law demands it. I guess notwithstanding the fact that this argument seems all very male-centric, doesn't it? I'm so glad that no one demanded that I get circumcised. <laughs> but in truth, I kind of feel sorry for the Jerusalem church. You see, the whole world was changing around them. 
And they just wanted to stay loyal to God and the law, which had showed them what God wanted of them. And if you tell some people that they don't need to get circumcised, then what's next? Can you, can you ignore the whole law? If you take one little bit out, does the whole edifice fall down? Is it just a slippery slope to anarchy? And what about their reputational damage? If we get too close to these people with their strange ways and their strange habits and their unholy ways and practices, our reputation will be ruined. At the end of the day, who is going to shape our common life? God or the world? And we cannot compromise with the world. We cannot compromise with others' ways of doing it. The slippery slope. If you take one bit out, the whole thing will fall down. What will others think if we go this way? And we mustn't compromise on our faith and allow the world to set our agenda. All those things that often we continue to wrestle with as we work through what it means to follow Jesus today in this world. But Paul is adamant. We are not declared righteous in the right part of God's family, he says, by works of the Jewish law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus, the Messiah, through the loyalty, the, the pistis, which Jesus showed when he died on the cross and which you show when you'll give your allegiance to Jesus. On the 22nd of June, 1948, the MV Empire Windrush docked in Tilbury, bringing workers from Jamaica and Trinidad and Tobago and other islands to help fill post-war labour shortages in the UK. Over the 20 or so, next 20 or so years, many more would follow in their footsteps. And many of those who arrived were Christians, followers of Jesus, who, who immediately when they arrived went to try and find a church to be part of, a church to, to belong to. But sadly, the welcome, in inverted commas, they received in church was often no warmer than the hostile welcome they received elsewhere. Far too frequently they were shunned, ignored, treated as somehow inferior. They were the victims of overt and covert racism. In 2013, the Archbishop of Canterbury acknowledged, acknowledged the church's failure. At this time, he said this, he said, we did not recognize that we belonged to one another, that we were called by Christ to love one another. And so the Church of England lost the new life they bought and that God was trying to offer us through them. Our hostility to those who were different to us. We are white, we are British. And so is our faith. And you are different and your faith is expressed in different ways and your spirituality is different. And though we wouldn't have said it quite like this, you're inferior to us. And all those arguments about slippery slopes and reputational damage and compromise. 
maybe all of which was symbolic of our spiritual arrogance and our hardness of heart. And we denied the gospel of Jesus Christ as a church. And we missed out on a blessing. And we were impoverished as a church as a result. And actually, we probably still are. We probably still are. And maybe that works on a societal level as well. As a society, when we determine to create a hostile environment to those who are not like us, to those who come to Britain for sanctuary, but who don't share our practices and our habits, even our faith, but those who come to escape persecution and violence. Maybe we are similarly impoverished as a result. We cut off ourselves from the blessings that the other would bring to us. And maybe when we do that, under the label of a Christian nation, then maybe once again we deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. And maybe within the church, we need to see those who are different from us. The one who doesn't fit my image of what a good Christian looks like. The one whose sexuality is different to mine. The one who comes from a different culture, from a different class. The one whose theology or spirituality is different. Maybe we need to see the other. However, we define that as a gift to be honored and treasured as we walk together and discover what it means to follow Jesus. Maybe we need to give up the spoken or the unspoken pressure to become like us. Brothers and sisters, our, our walk with Jesus, our walk with God as individuals and as a church family is a gift. It is ultimately God's work, not ours. Our salvation and our membership of God's family comes from the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, who loved me, who loved you, and who gave himself up for us to death on a cross. And that means that we can give up on our sense of inadequacy. I'm not good enough for God. I haven't done enough for God. Because neither am I. But our standing with God does not depend on our goodness. But on Christ's loyalty. God couldn't use me. I'm a rotten Christian. Well, so am I. But my belonging in God's family is based on what Jesus has done, not on the quality of my discipleship. And it means we can give up on our fear of slippery slopes and reputational damage. We can give up our attempts to be gatekeepers to the kingdom, to keep the undesirables, whoever they may be, out. It means we can give up our anxious need to make things right always. We can give up our need to ensure the purity of the church. We can give up our saviour complex that it's all down to me. Because it's not. It's not. Only God can set things right. And God has chosen to do that through the faithful death of Jesus Christ. 
And he has chosen to do that for Jew and for Gentile alike. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God.